Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. This episode's topic, The Gilded Midwest. The story of the Gilded Age is very much the story of the American Midwest, cauldron of immigration, engine of industrial progress, the most populated region in the country in this period, the place where most of the country's presidents came from in this era. Yet the Midwest has strangely been overlooked as a region in its own right, with its own identity and influence on American life, especially in this time. Why? And what did Midwesternness signify in this period, politically, culturally, in this time of rapid change and innovation? With me to discuss these questions and more is Dr. John Locke, author of The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest from 1800 to 1900. John, welcome. Thank you, Avi. It's a pleasure to join you. Pleasure's all mine. So let me start with a variant of the, a question I ask all my guests and almost all my guests in this series. If I were to approach the ideal average American at the beginning of this period, say at a, a little bit after the uh, a little bit after the end of the Civil War, in the middle of this period, the 1890s, and at the end of this period in 1920, what is the Midwest? Where is the Midwest? What does it mean to you? And what feelings does it make you think? Well, the Midwest at this time had uh, about 50 years of development behind it. And so uh, it was uh, fairly robust in terms of its boundaries and its culture and its uh, general geographic uh, parameters. Uh, we're talking about the uh, era, area from Ohio west out to eastern Kansas, eastern Nebraska, eastern Dakotas. And as you rightly pointed out, this was the biggest region in the country at this time. And unfortunately, it's the part of the United States we know the least about. Of course, we know a ton about the colonies and uh, the eastern seaboard. We know a ton about the American South because of its role in creating the Confederacy, etc., and even the American West has been a massive field of study for decades, even though it was pretty small in terms of population and importance politically and culturally during the Gilded Age. Um, as you say, uh, the uh, Midwest was the emergent prominent region during this era. Uh, I've called it uh, uh, peak Midwest in the late 19th century or this was the Midwestern moment in American history. And that is because it was uh, the land of American presidents. Uh, this was the land of great prosperity, both industrial and agricultural. It was a triumphant 
region because it led the uh, fight to win the Civil War for the North. And uh, alas, we don't know much about it. That's what prompted this book. So let me follow up on that because you mentioned this in the book. You mentioned this in the book and lament it. And I was honestly wondering how is that because it wasn't just economic and population. In terms of culture, you had giants like Mark Twain. You had great cultural trends like ragtime that came out of Missouri. Um, you had the fight over prohibition, which uh, was a major, major cultural battle that took place in the Midwest. So how is it that it was given such short shrift compared to the Northeast? for instance, in this era? Well, I think that has to do with cultural memory uh, to a certain extent. In the 20th century, early 20th century, there was a fairly active group of American historians uh, who focused on the Midwest. Um, The old academic association that used to focus on the Midwest, which was called the Mississippi Valley Historical Association, uh, changed its focus and became a national organization. It's known as the Organization of American Historians now. And nothing replaced it until about five years ago when a group of us formed the Midwestern History Association to try and resurrect that older history. But while all this was, uh, while the Midwestern studies uh, that may have existed a half century ago fell apart and began to diminish. Uh, the American South became a hotbed of study. There's probably a dozen or so centers for the study of the American South. Of course, the American West is the same way. Um, this is a massive field of historiography, but no one was studying the Midwest. And unfortunately, universities like University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, et cetera, which should have been carrying the ball for the study of the region, uh, failed to do so. And if there's one thing that can come out of this mini revival of interest in the Midwest, I hope some of these Midwestern cultural arbiters like those major state colleges uh, can give a little bit more study to the Midwest. I should say, Avi, if you're really interested in this, and I can tell you are, I don't know how many of your listeners really want to get down into the weeds, but in 2013, I published a book called The Lost Region, and it is a study of the historiography of the Midwest and how it was once prominent and then fell apart. Well, I hope you're very successful with it. And I also noticed that your website has uh, uh, its own podcast that covers books and things that cover that region. Uh, I look forward to listening to some of the episodes there. Um, so let's talk about how this, how our discussion here is relevant, not just from a historical perspective, but also perhaps to learn about our own age. Um, a lot of people nowadays, I'm not going to talk direct politics here, um, talk about how the Midwest is going through a time of real change, right? Uh the Gilded Age was a time when industry was replacing agriculture, and now industry has largely shifted away, or there's less people working in industry. Um, you describe in your book very well and very fascinatingly how uh, the Midwest was almost the ideal of a Tocquevillian society, with many um, civil society associations involved in small towns of varying sizes, with um, people uh, mostly with their focus on um, on, on rural life, on farming life, on education and self-betterment, but nevertheless close-knit communities. Um, but even in this era, and very rapidly so, I must say, is the rise of cities, cities like Chicago, cities like Detroit, 
cities like Minneapolis, so much so that I remember when someone mentioned um, uh, how by the 19, by, by the 1920 census, America was a majority rural nation, uh, sorry, urban nation. I took a look at the census map and you see that it's very disproportionate. In the South and the West, there's still a lot of rural, but the Midwest and the Northeast is very, very urban uh, compared to the rest of the country. Um, you mentioned in your book how people mostly lament that fact, but weren't there people who were, you know, Midwestern cultural or community leaders who said, look, this is happening as much as we'd like to stop it. It's not. Maybe we can figure out a way to implant Midwesterness into the cities. Well, throughout the 19th century, um, up until the end of the century, the Midwest was predominantly rural. And even in the 1880s, states like Iowa and Minnesota, Wisconsin, they are 70 and 80 percent rural. And so the uh, institutional DNA for a long time was rural farming, small town. And then, of course, as you know, in the late 19th century, there was very rapid uh, urbanization. And I mean, very rapid. I mean, places like Chicago were barely wide spots in the road and became, you know, huge centers of industry and commerce by the end of the 19th century. And a lot of that had to do with the rural hinterlands around Chicago, where corn was raised and beef was raised and lumber was cut in the northern parts of the Midwest. And so this all fueled the urbanization of some of these big Midwestern cities. Uh, my book ends about 1900. Um, I had grand ambitions at one point to do a general history of the Midwest. But as I started to bite off a few of these chunks of Midwestern history, I began to realize there's no way to get this into one book. So I kind of cut it off about 1900. And I say at the end of the book, we're entering a new phase of the Midwest here that is heavily industrialized. It's... Uh, more and more prominent cities. And that was a difficult process and it caused a lot of social frictions. Uh, You mentioned a couple of the prominent social issues of the era, like prohibition. Of course, there was a lot more support for prohibition uh, in rural areas and small towns. And Chicago was seen as a center of the uh, liquor trade and a source of these social ills. And of course, uh, people who went to the cities, you know, they often, they sometimes didn't make it. They ended up destitute. They ended up in slums. And so there was a, um, general, uh, stigma associated with the city. Uh, you can see this in some of the literature of the area, like Theodore Dreiser's, uh, Sister Carrie. I mean, that is kind of the story of a person in rural Wisconsin who goes to the big city and is corrupted by it. So there were these, There were these uh, frictions between the urban and rural Midwest that really needs to be taken up in the next uh, volume about the Midwest. So let me follow up on that. Uh, You mentioned the tension between the the small towns and the cities. One of the things you uh, emphasize um, is how, uh, as part of the Midwest democratic culture, they wanted to fight against uh, uh, city bosses and party machines and appoint people who were, you know, based on merit and so forth. 
Uh, one of the things I learned uh, in a previous interview about Germans in America, and as you know, and as you well know, Germans concentrated very strongly uh, in the Midwest, was cities were not just about Bossism, but they were also about, uh, I guess, an ongoing uh, internal debate about what it meant to be American, including, for instance, whether or not money should go uh, to German language schools. Uh, in many in many Midwestern cities, uh, to what extent uh, would you what was the what would what what would you say would be the was the Midwestern attitude towards immigration in general and immigration of people who they felt weren't a good fit? Well, in the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties, there were two big immigrant groups that started coming into the Midwest, and that was the Irish and the Germans, and um, even though the Irish, the stereotype is they moved to urban areas, there were a lot of uh, rural Irish, too, who moved out to become farmers. Uh, my great-grandparents were part of this move to the United States uh, during the uh, Great Famine in Ireland. They ended up in Nebraska and Iowa, et cetera. But a lot of Irish ended up in the cities. And for whatever reason, it's in the Irish DNA to be involved in politics. And uh, they quickly took over the machines in the big cities. And I think Chicago is the best example of that, especially in the 20th century with all these uh, Irish mayors, Mayor Daley being the most uh, prominent. The Germans, I think, fit in a little bit better. There was a little less friction uh, with um, the existing people in the Midwest than there was with the Irish. The Germans were divided into two groups, uh, the Catholic Germans and the Protestant Germans. And the Protestant Germans kind of fit in. They didn't have a major problem. Uh, the Catholic Germans had a little bit of friction due to their extant uh, Catholicism, which caused some friction with the uh, Protestant establishment in the Midwest. But again, not a big deal. The Germans were very successful in the Midwest and they built their own institutions and their own beer halls. And actually they had some conflicts with some of the prohibitionists. The big problem that Germans run into in the long run in the early 20th century is the coming of World War One, And all of a sudden there is this... Uh, uh, patriotic rising in all parts of the country to support the American war effort and a turn against Germans. And so it was during that period when a lot of school districts stopped teaching German language, when the speaking of German in schools was actually forbidden. Um, and this was a big deal in, in rural places like Nebraska and the Dakotas, where there was a huge number of people still speaking German. Mm -hmm. And what happened to those Germans after this World War I wave um, is a real mystery or it's a real interesting problem in Midwestern history that no one is really um, focused on. Because after that period, they become kind of generic wasps and you don't really know where they fit. And uh, it's a great research project for somebody. But uh, I think th they're the culture of the Germans, uh, they definitely thrived. There were dozens and dozens of German language newspapers that there are a couple of scholars now who are really delving into. And also there was another 
side group of Germans who came from Russia, who had earlier been recruited by Catherine the Great to move to Russia to become farmers. And they were enticed there by a um, exemption for military service. Well, when the czar finally repealed that, those Germans wanted to get out and they ended up moving to the Midwest. And you, you will see around the Midwest, Mennonite and Hutterite colonies and towns. And that's the, you know, ongoing influence of those folks. Okay. Um, before I touch on uh, what you mentioned with uh, World War One, as well as other issues, um, I thought I might ask you a question, which I'm, I'm only starting to get involved in. Uh, I wanted to do an episode in my series about the great migration of black Americans into the Midwest. And I figured that it w- that happened at this point, but I learned that it really only happened towards the end of this period. It really only started in 1915. And that question only became stronger as I read how you discussed how the Midwest was pretty quick to uh, remove restrictions and remove, uh, at the very least, legal restrictions on black Americans who wanted to move to the Midwest and live and be involved in civil society. And yet, relatively few people came until quite late. Uh, I was wondering if you could give the Midwestern Explanation as to why why it took so long for them to you know come come into Detroit, come into those areas. Yeah, it's uh, the the famous Great Migration, the big migration happens about the time of World War One, and that's when you see these African American neighborhoods really boom and blossom in places like Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit. And this is. Uh, a very famous migration. There's been a lot of great literature on this. Um, a lot of it is focused on the major cities of the Midwest. And if I can give a plug for the academic journal I edit uh, titled Middle West Review, we did a special issue a couple issues ago focused on the great migration to smaller cities. So cities like uh, Cedar Rapids and Davenport and Grand Rapids, Michigan, which don't really get as much attention, but there was definitely a migration there too. Uh, the key draw was the uh, burst in uh, need for manpower in Midwestern uh, factories during World War One, and that drew in a lot of African American workers. Uh, that was definitely a pull factor. A push factor was growing uh, Jim Crow intolerance and strictures in the American South. Uh, that was definitely a push factor. I think more mechanization of Southern farming meant that there were fewer jobs available for African-Americans in the South. Sharecropping was upended and disrupted. And so this is when you begin to see the migration of, you know, famous people like Richard Wright leaving Mississippi and moving to Chicago, which is a fascinating story that he tells very well. Um, I do think there is a very important history here in the Midwest that hasn't been told very well, and that is an early civil rights revolution in the Midwest. Now, when we think of American history and the civil rights movement, we think of the 1960s, but Uh, People might want to take a step back and look at what happened uh, throughout the course of the 19th century in the Midwest, but in particular, the civil rights movement of the 1860s and 1870s. Now, 
There is an early stage, especially in southern oriented states like southern Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, where there are some black laws that are clearly racist and restrictive, et cetera. And that's discussed in my book, The Good Country. Uh, but by the 1840s, uh, Ohio is beginning to repeal those black laws and they're creating schools for black children to attend. And they're actually creating integrated schools. And there's a very prominent abolitionist movement in places like Ohio and Michigan that puts a lot of pressure on the South. And they begin to adopt civil rights laws in these Midwestern states, making it clear that there can be no discrimination on buses and in uh, public accommodations and in hotels and in restaurants. They put this in the statute very early on. Um, so that uh, that story doesn't get told very much. Uh, mostly in American history, we focus on what happens in the South in the 1960s. So I think this this aspect of Midwestern history gives us a uh, a different angle on American history in general. It certainly does. Um, I actually wanted to ask you some, uh, just a quick question that came up because you mentioned in the chapter how they not only uh, passed anti-discrimination laws of public accommodation, but they also worked hard to, at the very least in many places, make racial integration optional in schools. And yet the famous case of Brown versus Board of Education involved um, so a black girl, I think, who was in the, I believe in Topeka, uh, in Topeka, Kansas. So is it possible that this revolution, while great, was only partial or maybe there was a backlash? Oh, there's no question it was partial. I, I'm right. just saying, I don't think most people know that there was any kind of, uh, uh, movement in that direction at all. Uh, yes, there definitely, um, very much um, unfinished business. And this is something that gets worked on up into the 1950s and 1960s. Um, I just think it's, I mean, it was interesting to me. I mean, I was, I've been working on Midwestern history for a long time. And when I de delved down into the details of this, I didn't know that there were integrated uh, schools in Ohio in the 1850s. I, I was sort of surprised by that. And I was surprised at the degree of African-American voting in the 19th century in the Midwest. Um, it really, I mean, there are a few books I found, but it really deserves more attention and a, a closer treatment and, and a comparative work uh, with other parts of the country and other parts of the world. I mean, there's been a lot more work on Atlantic history and, and how immigrants were treated in other countries like England, et cetera. Um, I think that's a great project. And I kind of looked for some of this uh, when I was working on this uh, book, but it was already too long to begin with. So I didn't go down that, that particular trail. Okay. Uh no, you're definitely right that uh, while it was partial, we definitely ignored the positive aspects that you rightly, I think, uh, in your as you put it in your book, you want to rebalance history so that we understand both the positive and the negative. Uh, that brings us to the uh, a key point in American history and one that I think people are really only starting to understand because it's so overshadowed by the second round, and that's World War I. Uh, you mentioned in your book, you state in your book a number of times, and it's one where I'm, I'm not so sure if I agree with you, really. 
um, that World War One was kind of like the the cutoff point. That was when that was the peak of Midwesterness when everything started to decline afterward for a whole variety of reasons. Um, if I may ask, uh, I guess a three part question. One, um, the Midwest has something of a of a reputation of being isolationist, maybe because of World War Two. I was wondering how people felt in before the first round, and so, uh, what how did how did the Midwest fare compared to other regions in participating in the war? And perhaps most importantly, why do you consider World War One to be this great cutting off point? Well, I think the most famous period of time uh, in terms of Midwestern isolationism would have been the 1930s. And a lot of that has to do with the perceived failures of the First World War and the failures of American intervention and the failures to solve problems in Europe. Of course, in the 20s and 30s, things devolved very quickly in Europe and people who were not excited about American interventions overseas could point to that very readily and say, look what we got into and look what the result was. And that, of course, uh, fueled these isolationist sentiments. Also, there was a strong belief that the Midwest was doing fine on its own and the persons uh, pushing uh, for war in Europe or intervention in Europe were Eastern industrialists who would tend to benefit uh, from, from the war. I mean, that was a common attitude. And there was a famous senator from North Dakota who constantly beat the drum on this particular point and said, kept pointing out the amount of money that munitions makers in the United States uh, made uh, from the war itself. So, uh, and then there were prominent uh, Midwesterners like, um, like Lindbergh and others and Colonel McCormick at the Chicago Tribune. Now, once the bombs were dropped at Pearl Harbor, this changed extremely fast and people were completely on board with American intervention in the war. And, you know, prominent uh, Midwestern political leaders, I think of Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan, for example, Carl Munt of South Dakota, and many others, uh, they quickly shift to being uh, strong advocates of American intervention and remain so after the war, being supportive of NATO and the United Nations, etc. Uh, so why do I pick World War One as a cutoff? Well, Avi, I have to concede that part of this is I had to choose somewhere because this could not go on any longer. It's already too long, as they say. Uh, but I do think things change in there. Um, America becomes heavily involved in overseas matters. Um, of course, uh, as you said earlier, the country makes a shift into being a majority urban country. So that's a new era. Uh, the coming of radio and soon television uh, gives rise and and um, films, the film industry gives rise to a mass culture in the country, which uh, erodes or undermines the local culture of various regions, which I talk about in the book. Um, at, toward the end of the book, I talk about uh, this blossoming regionalist culture in the Midwest 
you know, centered in Chicago and other places, but there were Midwest based magazines and journals and people trying to write about the region. Uh, a lot of that gets snuffed out with the coming of mass culture and the growing power of the film industry in Hollywood and the growing concentration of publishing in New York. And that kind of saps the energy of a lot of regional writers and a lot of people who want to be involved in literature and write books. They end up leaving and going to those places because that's where the action is. So I think that's a, a key uh, dividing point. Um, also, by that time, the Midwest is becoming much more uh, urbanized and industrialized. And that means it's a different kind of Midwest than it was during the 19th century, which is the focus of my book. Now, in theory, down the road, if I were to uh, write another book about the Midwest and and uh, pick up the story, I mean, World War One would be the perfect place to do it and probably take it to the post-war era. Now, I would say that a couple of years ago, I published this book about this era, 20s and 30s and regional culture, et cetera, called From Warm Center to Ragged Edge. And it had quite a bit to do with <clears throat> World War One and F. Scott Fitzgerald. So if people want to delve into that a little bit more, I address that a lot more in that book. Oh, that sounds great. And uh, I actually do look forward to you following up on World War One, although uh, obviously also covering from 1900 to 1917. Um Dr. Luck, you have given us a wonderful introduction uh, to a long-forgotten uh, region, and I hope uh, everyone enjoys reading your book, uh, The Good Country, as much as I have. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Avi. I really enjoyed it. 